Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edmund Davis and joining me this week through the Miracle of Satellite Technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Oh, I'm grand. Thank you, Ed. I have the bank holiday for the first time as a freelancer that I can remember, so I'm very excited. And happy Memorial Day to you! Mm, yes, uh, got a nice three-day weekend this week, which uh, is, is nice... See, we don't get a huge number of federal holidays uh, over here, but uh, everyone always feels like such a, a nice little reprieve, um, particularly in the last year where, like, you know, for, certainly for me, working from home, like, it, it can be a little bit hard to get quite that sense of the work-life balance. Um, so, like, having that extra day to not have to worry, not have to check Slack or whatever um, does does always feel like a little nice uh, although having said that I did just have like a week off so you know it's, so I, I'm just like lousy with holidays at the moment. <laughs> um, but no it's been nice I, I've mainly been using it to finish off my year long project of watching every Godzilla movie oh. which uh, is is very fun and um, maybe maybe something we'll probably talk about at some point in a future episode that's been quite a nice thing especially because all those movies are all like they're all less than two hours, I think, for the most part, and they usually clock in around like a hundred minutes. So, like, they're like the perfect thing to kind of like put on early, early in the morning. Watch one, you know, have lunch, uh, watch another one. You know, it's, it's pretty light and easy to to knock out a bunch of those in a day. So we'll go on to the news for this week, and uh, there were some kind of like big big stories happening in the world of cinema. The first one that I have, I think we could could put this under uh, movies are back which is that over this past weekend uh, a quiet place part two which was meant to come out last year and obviously was delayed by the uh, by the pandemic uh, finally came out in theaters here in the u.s and on, is on course to earn around 48 million dollars for the three day and around about 60 for the four day weekend including uh, memorial day which uh, is about on par or slightly higher than what the first one managed uh, back in 2017 i think that one came out and and also um cruella the disney uh prequel that has been a subject of much discussion online and many memes is on course to earn like around 30 million which is pretty good for you know a movie that's also available on premium on demand on disney plus so there's this real sense of like you know people were clearly chomping at the bit to go back to the cinema you know like to, to go and to watch a movie in a theater after a year where the ability to do do that has been like somewhat spotty and you know depending on where you lived and depending on the laws about whether or not cinemas can be open but also what based on the fact that you know just hollywood cinema uh, studios in general have been keeping their powder dry and have not been putting big movies into theaters because they don't want to suffer the fate of of tenet uh, most notably where you put out a movie in the middle of a pandemic people don't really go and see it and you lose a ton of money so even though I don't have particularly strong feelings about either of those movies. I'll probably see A Quiet Place Part 2 because it seems like the 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 movie to go and see. It is just kind of, like, nice to have this sudden, like, uh, empirical evidence of, like, oh, yeah, people do actually 
want to go and be part of the theatrical experience, there is still some importance to that in culture for a huge number of people. It is really heartening to see that we were all just waiting for it to be safe enough to come back. Yeah. You know, there's that suggestion and I hope that everyone is safe because it's very hard to make it an individual responsibility thing when you're essentially engaging with an institution (laughs) it's up to them to ensure that the space is as safe as possible and then you engage with that and it's bizarre to me because it still hasn't quite hit me that I might be able to go to the cinema before the end of this year (laughs) yeah Uh, so it'll just be a cool like oh just under two years since I've been to see a film in a dark room with strangers instead of on a small screen in my house that is what that is what we we did and, and, and what we do and how they're best seen. I think it's a little bit business as usual though, in the sense that the kind of I can't think of any other word than hackiness to describe the plot leaks about the Cruella film, <laughs> which was something yeah. that no one asked for. But it was a delight. Like Twitter has been an absolute delight, which we'll go into uh, further detail in a bit of late. Um, but in particular people being like oh well you know uh, Captain Hook's parents were killed by a twink like just (laughs) top form kind of stuff and it is just so convoluted as an Mm. idea and it's like why can't we just have like campy fun why does everyone have to have a gritty reboot including like and I think some people are trying to see it as like, oh, it's a lady joker. We didn't need a joker and we don't need a lady joker. That's not what feminism is. And the thing that um, bothers me about A Quiet Place too is that uh, Charlotte Little, who is a brilliant um, Scottish uh, film critic, her perspective is that she has Usher's syndrome. Um, so is both uh, sort of impaired visually and with hearing. And she said, you know, I'm just fed up that there's no captions as standard yeah. for, for A Quiet Place too. And it's like, well, yeah, you can't sort of say, oh, we're doing something big for the deaf community by having a, a deaf character. And it all just feels a bit gimmicky, you know, because that's mm. the whole kind of element of it. And it's like there was such an opportunity missed there. So, again, it's like, cool, the movies are back but it's the movies you remember. We've learnt nothing. <laughs> but I'm still... I'm still always going to love the med. I'm not going to not go. Mm. But it is just a little bit like, oh, come on, guys. Like, it, it, it makes me a bit um, apprehensive. Surprise, surprise. Mm, I, I think also to, to, to the sense of, like, oh, it's the movies that you remember. Like, uh, and obviously this is just anecdotal, but a lot of the people I follow on Twitter who have been like using this opportunity to go and see movies for the first time over the last couple of weeks like a lot of the stuff they're going to see is particularly people I know who live in New York like going to rep cinemas and watching you know old movies on the big screen because it's possible to do that again or particularly this weekend um, Fast Five was re-released in advance of the the release of Fast Nine and uh, that was a kind of like a big thing for a lot of people going to see that movie and that movie's a blast as well that's like a great movie to go and watch on the big screen because it's just super super dumb super fun uh, but yeah there, there is that weird sense of like all oh, the movies that we're getting now it's movies that people already know they like it's movies that were produced before the pandemic and have been delayed and have kind of slowly 
you know kind of like trickling out at this point um there there's uh even if you know people are going to see movies again and then maybe there's that sense of theatrical exhibition kind of like getting a nice dose of of fresh air there is still you know maybe a a weird sense of stagnation around it Mm. of like you're not really getting the most original stuff (laughs) which is just a hollywood problem of the last you know sort of five or six years anyway but um yeah it definitely feels even more pronounced when you kind of look at it and go oh so the big movie that everyone came back for was a sequel to a horror movie from a few years ago okay um although i guess it's kind of immaterial like it could have been any movie that you know like whatever movie happened to be the one that came out the first weekend that studios felt okay now's the time to start putting movies back in that would have been the movie that really kind of marked the turnaround it just so happened that it was you know two two franchise offerings like you know uh if if they'd held off on tenor it could have been tenor mm. yeah, it could have been yeah big original weird sci-fi movie yeah i mean talking about stagnation if there's anything that we've all learned over the past uh the past pandemic it's that good ventilation is key and i do mm. think you know a quiet place too is about you know it's interesting that the first one came before the pandemic and this is one sort of i'm not exactly sure of the production timeline but at least that it's coming out now and it's like, oh, we've lived through something like this. And as far as I'm aware, it seems like a prequel because John Krasinski's still in it. So it's like... I think he's in he's in like a scene or two. Right, and then right. And most of it takes place after the previous movie, so he's not in those parts. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> not, to spoil, not to spoil The Quiet Place for people, <laughs> but... Um, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on, guys, you've had a couple of years. But it is, you know, it's not... A, a world away from the world that we've been living in. It's a it's a mm. massive disaster that has affected everyone globally, and there's this threat that is very difficult to very difficult to um, to fight and to defend yourself against. And you know, yeah. if, you know, Tenet would have you know if they'd hung on in terms of the spectacle, maybe. But now I think it's like a lot of people do want to see a quiet place too, precisely because it's a place that we can put and, and start to frame some of this stuff that we've been through. Mm. Cause I don't think we're at the end of it. I'm just going to say, no. but, we're, but we're at a very no. particular point of it where there is some sort of progress. I'm interested to see how things kind of shape as they go on. Also, like, are we finally going to see bloody bond? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like, Oh God, what, you know, <laughs> Happy benefit to all those who celebrate. Is it truly 2004 again or 2019? Can we just roll back? I don't know what time it is, but yeah, I'd like to be at the cinema. <laughs> mm. And speaking of Bond, uh, you know, we just had our, our movies are back news, so now we get our movies are over news, which is that <laughs> Amazon, a uh, big, massive con- corporation that control way too many things, uh, decided to buy some extra stuff they kind of put they decided to put mgm in their cart and uh <laughs> and, then, and then they left they it and they exited the browser and then they got an email mm. saying did you forget something we've given you a discount <laughs> and decided to that what they would like they would like that you know they, they got, got a bit drunk, drunk. they had, had a few glasses of, of rosé <laughs> and they started browsing and then uh, the next day studios oh what have i ordered here it comes this box oh it's a little lion uh, 
<laughs> uh, and, and yes, they spent eight point five billion, eight point six billion on uh, MGM, the venerable movie studio that's been around for about a hundred years, and has obviously got a long storied history. Uh, particularly in the last couple of years, a somewhat rocky one. Um, I think they went into bankruptcy like a few years ago. Yeah, there was, was, there was certainly a lot of problems that they had around getting Bond movies produced for a little while because that was all like tied up into financial issues that MGM was having because they still own the right to the Bond license. And so there's that they've had a kind of like a rough couple of years. And I think there were a lot of companies that were looking into maybe purchasing them because obviously everyone's you know kind of like on a bit of a buying spree at the moment in in hollywood and trying to uh, consolidate power and ownership and things like that but amazon were the ones who uh who took took the plunge and spent uh, overspent i think a lot of people would say um to buy uh, mgm and all of their the properties that they own uh all of the various franchises they've got in the back catalog most notably bond although Eon, the company founded by uh, Cubby Broccoli and currently run by his his children, um, Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli, is has a, a huge amount of control over Bond. So like it, yes. this isn't probably going to affect the Bond franchise all that much going forward. But uh, it is a little depressing to see you know this this studio that's I uh, got the, the obviously the iconic Lion logo and has put out so many great movies over the course of its time falling under the sway of uh, you know this big tech company and for, for just in general like that sense you know already there's so few players in Hollywood so the idea that Amazon would you know own both their own film studio and their and suddenly buy all this stuff just again like reduces the number of avenues that maybe people have to try and make new and interesting and original movies but from a you know um uh, exhibition uh, standpoint, you know, like them suddenly owning all of these old movies that they could just put on Prime. You know, mm. is this going to create a situation similar to what happened when Disney bought Fox, where suddenly all their rep titles will suddenly not be available because they want to put them all on Star? You know, like that's the that to me is the most depressing thing about this. This this thing of like, oh, is this going to make it harder for people to go and watch? MGM like you know MGM musicals in theaters when they get re-released or even just to buy physical copies of them because Amazon would rather use them as a way of kind of funneling more people into prime. Oh yeah, I just feel massively flumped just thinking about it because it's hard not to and like you say Amazon already has control over too many things and that there hasn't mm. been any sort of pushback. I think it's difficult because it's global. You know, if it was solely working in maybe like America or the UK, you could probably crack down. But yeah. they are, you know, Google as well, just beer moths. And it's so hard to be able to make choices when they have just become ubiquitous and convenient to the point of everyone's detriment. And I don't know what the solution is, Ed, but I did see a tweet, <laughs> as I do, because I'm always seeing mm-hmm. tweets. Um, that just said there should be one app called Movies and we all pay like $8 for it. And I was like, yes, I agree. I absolutely agree. But also that I want that to be like a library, not a monopoly. Um, mm. And uh, it's just it's just grim how often there's something on Amazon and we're all having to kind of be 
even more aware of money, I think, right now because of the pandemic, obviously. And it's like, well, I'd rather watch this thing on YouTube, but can I afford to pay three or four pounds a pop just to rent each time? Whereas, you know, it is just that eight pounds a month. It's like, how can how can anyone say no? Oh, yeah, it's not great. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. It's like turning to me for analysis and then I just splurt some feelings of, oh, God, capitalism. That's that's how we do it here. Yeah. I, I think also, like, the other thing that's kind of a little depressing about this is that Amazon's, you know, Amazon's actual studio that makes movies in the last couple of years has kind of been committed to making original stuff. Like, obviously, they were behind... Um, Manchester by the Sea, that was kind of like their big one in terms of their Oscar plays. Um, that they, They've generally been pretty good at putting out good, interesting things. Um, Wonderstruck, the, the Todd Haynes movie from a few years ago, I thought was like really wonderful. Um, so they, they've kind of had this run where they were you know, using all of their money and resources to, to make these interesting movies by filmmakers who maybe wouldn't have been able to get those movies made elsewhere. And then clearly someone at Amazon said yeah that's not working let's just buy a bunch of IP and then like the, the press release for it was like talking about wanting to reimagine all of these franchises for like the new um, the new century or whatever and you're just kind of thinking oh fuck no <laughs> like, they were they, they were on to you know a, a reasonably good reasonably interesting thing like they even put like you know I am not your negro you know like that was like a fantastic movie that they, they were behind yeah, so there's just something like particularly depressing about that. Like maybe they'll continue both, and like you know, with Amazon, they'll have that as like their boutique label that puts out interesting movies for award season or whatever. Yeah. But this sudden shift, and and also the, you know more recently them doing like coming to America, um, where they kind of shifted to yeah, let's make it like a long delay sequel to a movie that people like. But it maybe it's just a, a, a holistic movement away from. Uh, trying to make genuine art and more towards just kind of like whatever IP soup they have decided uh, is the future of movies. God, yeah, it's just such a goulash. I just want one solid original meal, Ed. This is what <laughs> I would really like. I, I could not give a toss about the wider stretch of universes now. Just people mm. have ideas. Give them the money, please. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, on to uh, more more happy news. Um, <laughs> uh, it was reported that uh, Charlie Hansen, who is a producer who works primarily with uh, Ricky Gervais, most recently on his uh, Afterlife series, was accused of it has like uh, historical accusations from eleven women coming through of sexual assault against him, which has has led to him being removed as producer from either the current or the forthcoming uh, series of Afterlife and, you know, has had um, various, obviously, uh, condemnation and, and people in the industry kind of, like, talking about him. Um, but it also, you know, it's it's, it's an old story, <laughs> isn't it? You know, it's kind of a story that people uh, tell and retell over and over, have done so in recent years, uh, post-Me Too, of, you know, sort of a powerful person in the film industry, or even, you know, not necessarily even, like, hugely powerful, but someone who has, a, a, you know, a kernel of influence, using it as a way of exploiting people they encounter. And 
yeah, it's just like a horrible thing to see, and you hope that you know something will be done about it. There'll be some sort of restitution, and and the victims will be able to find some sort of uh, justice. But yeah, like even as we have entered a period where these things are being talked about more and people are feel comfortable enough to kind of like step forward, um, it doesn't make it any less like awful when you hear about these stories and you you kind of realise how rife this sort of stuff was and remains. Absolutely. And just immense respect to the women who came forward. And remember, that's always just the women who came forward. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. all of the women and I think the most crucial thing that I saw was that Jessica Knappett, who is a British comedian known for the Inbetweeners movie and for her own series Drifters on Channel 4, which I think was sadly quite overlooked. It's, uh, it's fab. Um, she said, well, th- this has been an open secret for years. So mm. now that people have actually come forward, probably off the back of Charlie Hansen criticising BAFTA, what he is a member of for how they handled or didn't handle the Noel Clark allegations. And I think they were like, well, no, you don't get to do this now um, mm. because we know who you are and what you're like. And Jessica Knappett said, you know, it just sounds like people who are, you know, and, and looking at, so not naming Gervais, but like Gervais and Afterlife as a, as a general sort of team um, to say like, well, you're prioritizing one man's career over women's safety. And it, mm. it is, it is that stark. It is that clear. It's very unlikely that Netflix will either drop afterlife or whether they'll go forward with another series. But I think this is the venture, you know, this is a, a point where they can just say, Oh, well, you know, we're, we always meant for it to be three series or anything, something like that. I mean, they'll just wriggle mm. out of it. And Gervais is not someone who has got the best record of working with people himself either. So, you know, colour me completely unsurprised. Mm. Yeah. And in our final uh, piece of news, you alluded to it earlier, but uh, Matt LeBlanc has become an Irish folk hero of sorts. Uh, as a result of the airing of Friends the Reunion, not Friends the Return, which would be very different, Um, which aired on HBO Max over here in the US and I I assume Sky or something in the UK. I'm I'm not sure how it was shown internationally, but certainly um, people in Ireland have seen it and and people in Ireland in particular seem to really enjoy uh, Matt LeBlanc's appearance in it where um, pretty much right away everyone just decided he looks like an Irish dad uh, and started posting pictures of him with like things like saying oh how did you get here, did you drive down the M6 and, t- and turn off on Junction 11 and things like that and that as as you said earlier has, uh, or off, off mic I can't remember um, when we discussed it um, but that has been like such a delightful thing to see and seeing like the, all, all of the jokes around it which have been I think you know fairly kind of like positive and not like mocking him or shaming him or anything for the fact that you know he's kind of like older clearly has has enjoyed himself over over the years and seems very comfortable in his skin and just generally in you know the general vibe of 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 the reunion being that he was like just really happy to be there and happy to kind of like hang out with everyone and 
seeing people kind of relate to that and kind of <laughs> put their own little spin on it has been uh, just like one of the, the highlights of, of social media over the last couple of days. I don't even want to risk just repeating everyone <laughs> who's done absolutely beautiful work. Everyone's done incredibly well. There is just one tweet that I absolutely adored that I think covers all of it, which was essentially... Matt LeBlanc is going to be so confused in his role in the reunification of Ireland. <laughs> Which, I mean, chef kiss, how are you getting on? <laughs> uh, so we'll go on to the main topic for this week. It's another show and tell episode where we bring uh, a film or, or several films that we've seen recently and we found interesting and felt that we wanted to discuss. Uh, Emily, why don't you kick us off with, with your selection of films this week? Yeah, so I've got a triple. Um, it's still in the meal deal. It still counts. <laughs> so I have realised that recently my sort of comfort watching has really settled into kind of early 90s through to early 2000s thriller films and mm-hmm. I cannot for the life of me immediately hit on why this is the case so I'd love any sort of neurologists to uh, who you know our, our big neurologist demographic mm-hmm. to tell me but there is something about the cinematography and there was this real style for and a prevalence for this kind of lush golden hazy look that is almost like a rom-com but I just think everything's still shot on film and looks really lush and there's just such interesting stuff going on but three films that I've watched recently to varying degrees of uh, quality maybe but absolute max levels of enjoyment are Copycat from 95 Arlington Road from 99 and Runaway Jury from 2003, which, you know, a, a real uh, stark turn from Runaway Bride in the Runaway mm-hmm. franchise, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. expecting something or very different. Runaway, runaway Train. Yeah, exactly. I was like, wow, there's all, it's almost like none of these films have anything connecting them at all. This is really bold as an anthology. So starting with Copycat, I think what I found so refreshing about it and watching it again after not having seen it for a really long time it's a film that handles really explicit violence very well because you understand fundamentally what is traumatizing without something being sensationalized and it is really a film that is pushing against the glorification of serial killers Mm. Sigourney Weaver is incredible I think how she manages to establish a character who you only see in a pre-traumatised state for all of about 10 minutes, but you know exactly who she is. And then her kind of revealing little flashes of it, like, you know, becoming a, developing agoraphobia and PTSD after nearly being killed and watching someone die and being looked after by her sort of gay best friend who's the only person she trusts and talking about how she misses sex and then sort of like sidling up to Dermot Mulroney and it's like oh my god there's so much going on here this is incredible like it feels like a really fully fleshed out character and um 
Holly Hunter is also just like off the scales amazing. And it's, you know, around the same time as, or not too far off the back of Silence of the Lambs, which, don't get me wrong, also great and is like, I love a bit of Demi, don't get me wrong. Um, But that Silence of the Lambs is lauded as like such an incredibly like feminist film when it is, you know, deeply transphobic. (laughs) Let's not forget that. Um, And it's not to, I'm not trying to say this as anything in kind of like, disregard of Jodie Foster's performance but copycats right there and it's two women who are essentially along that brains and brawn dynamic but Holly Hunter is like this tiny petite woman (laughs) Mm. and yet you do not fucking mess with her and the fact that they are you know it's sort of about them being women but it doesn't it's in no way reductive I just think it's such a gutsy crowd-pleasing cerebral sort of thriller that genuinely surprised me at various different points and how it turns and that it's less of a whodunit and a how catch them as well and it's like oh yeah it's really not about this like big reveal it's so much more about the pervasive level of threat and what it means to live in the world as a woman oh i just i just loved it and then talking about cinematography arlington road blew my socks off i mean i think it's hard to not kind of make comparisons with Lynch when Angelo mm-hmm. Badalamenti is doing your soundtrack. But there are these really gorgeous, like, sort of strange, deep shots. And it's just like completely, com- like, just throws you into it immediately. Like that opening sequence and how things kind of roll out. And I think it's, really nicely written and a very strange film to watch now in terms of you know the state of America given that that was 99 and what the film is intimating is there's no such thing as a a white lone wolf (laughs) when it comes to domestic terrorism and being like oh yes this was even before the internet so and I just love Jeff Bridges and I think he's so great as you know, the kind of slightly neo-noiry, like, final stand, because I love Cutter's Way, and it feels like a sort of harking back to that, and it's this lovely kind of midpoint where he's kind of, like, just getting into a sort of dad bod era, but before he goes full dude. And um, Tim Robbins, and, I mean, Joan Cusack should be in everything, and she's not in enough, and she's not in Harlington Road enough, but she just, like, puts this really sort of, like, acidic spike through all of it oh yeah i I think she's also um sorry uh, uh, i think one of the things about that movie though also i think is really good in terms of the broader understanding of like white white terrorism essentially in the u.s and white supremacy is that through her character it does kind of acknowledge that oh like white women are often the bedrock of white supremacy or they're, 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 they're like the supporters they're the kind of people who benefit from it and that's not something that tends to get talked about that much it yeah. tends to be when you have things that are about white supremacists and particularly ones who connect acts to violence it tends to focus on you know the male participants um and yeah a lot of them do <laughs> do a lot of horrible things but um i think that movie 
in addition to like all the other stuff that it does really really well is it it does display a real keen understanding of of that um which is weird when you consider that it was written by Aaron Kruger who subsequently went on to like be the guy who writes all the Transformers <laughs> movies and has like not really written anything good since except for um the the remake of the ring that's okay but um I mean yeah, the range <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, that's true. There is range. Maybe it's just, you know, <laughs> find, replace, terrorist with Transformer. I think that's that's <laughs> such an excellent point, Ed, because what Arlington Road is is pushing is there is no such thing as a lone wolf. These are huge networks, and it is basically the far Christian right. And mm. it's such a bold film to watch something that is kind of so boldly like anti-american in terms of like or, or saying like these are our specific american values the pain that jeff bridges's character goes through like the idea of like what is the story that is told to you and the narrative that benefits people versus what actually happened and you know the different ways that you can represent something and twist something to mean something different and you're so right like the thing about joan cusack and you know it's it's not just one it's never just one guy it is mm. a network it is a whole strata of society speaking of cusacks runaway jury mm-hmm. uh featuring john um what a what a weird film like <laughs> it's not good <laughs> like i find the cusacks the the most like charming almost screwballish screen presences and they are Mm. again people that i we spoke about our free pass episode and they are definitely people that have absolute free passes to me forever because they shouldn't quite work and yet they do like john cusack manages to be like a heartthrob and an indie darling and oh i just i just think they're incredible the way they work with with cameras is so he is he is a delight and you can understand that he is this everyman charismatic sort of plant who seems to be trying to get this jury to go one way. Gene Hackman. I've missed seeing Gene Hackman as well. Mm. But but then there's also Dustin Hoffman and then there's also the judge and then there's also Rachel Weisz and there's also and there's also and there's also and it is the most confused ensemble film I've ever seen in my life because there is no they didn't at no point did anyone say will we not just find one protagonist? It's like no. Everyone. <laughs> Everyone's a protagonist. Everyone's an antagonist. To the point where it reminded me of Spotlight because this was why I didn't like Spotlight. It didn't satisfyingly create characters. It almost felt like journalists assemble. You know, it it was a superhero film with real people. And the one gripping part for me of Spotlight is when we focus on Mark Ruffalo just trying to get the information he needs before the library closes. Like he's he's rushing around and, you know, bureaucracy and it's just absurd and brilliant. But it's just that thing where it's like, I need someone to focus on, otherwise everyone's just a cipher. And it felt like the same scene over and over again for for over two hours. It's a really (laughs) long film. You'd think (laughs) there'd be time to put some characterization in it somewhere, but apparently not. Apparently not. But it has my golden hazy cinematography. It's uh, It's in New Orleans, so that's fun. Uh, yeah, sorry. After sort of the SNL characters, I I I am now ruined, and I have to say, Norlands, it's the big easy. <laughs> Anytime I mention it, so you know, deep apologies to the people of New Orleans. Uh, 
So it's been, I don't know, again, like, what is it that I find so comforting about them? I don't know if it's because they're kind of bolder thrillers and they're cerebral in a sense that they're also quite primal. Mm. And I think the dialogue, particularly in Copycat and Arlington Road, is great. There are genuine twists and turns. They're satisfying in terms of their length. Like, they, I think they're both about an hour and a half. So that real nice tight 90 minutes. Or at least it feels that way. But there's just something that I think is really... I don't know. They're glossy rather than gritty. They're slick. And I miss that. I miss that kind of um, lean into some style, but without being divorced from reality completely. And Runaway mm. Jury is ridiculous, but it kind of almost signals the end of that, like, these are smart thrillers. It's like, this is a little bit more on the worthy side. We're packing in as many, you know, big names as possible to make this happen. It's a John Grisham novel adaptation. Mm. You know, it's all a bit like, oh, well, okay. I mean, if I wanted an an airport paperback, I would have bought it and read it. I don't want to go and spend this money to watch it, you know. But I think that's just what I'm missing from the general landscape now. Like, I can't think of a steady flow of really satisfying thrillers of late, you know. Mm. Like, I think maybe, like, Blue Ruin, Green Room, that kind of thing, something that was genuinely innovative. Um, because I think Copycat, like I said, in terms of its feminist credentials, is really ahead of its time and has just been sort of sat on. Yeah, so I'm, 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 I'm missing, you know, thrillers that don't take themselves too seriously, but are also really grounded and look nice. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, across those three, and uh, Copycat uh, is the only one of those I, I haven't seen, uh, but I think I will check it out because uh, it does sound like really interesting. Um, but I think there there is definitely a sense of like you know we we talk about often on this show like the end of the mid budget movie, yeah. um, and you know I feel like thrillers that would cost like 20 or 30 million dollars mostly because of or of um cast salaries um are, are really feel like one of those kind of movies that has either disappeared entirely or now goes straight to streaming or just becomes a tv show and yes yeah so much of that you can see i mean less less so arlington road because i think arlington road is especially like bleak in that regard you know the, yeah. the ending of that movie is a, is a an ending that i haven't forgotten ever since i like caught that movie late at night on channel four or whatever in the, oh, the early 2000s um but certainly you know runaway jewelry for all of its kind of like silliness you can really see there you know it's uh yeah based as you say based on a John Grisham novel and and he ruled the nineties in terms of like just providing a steady stream of material for filmmakers to go okay how many famous people can we put in a courtroom <laughs> and just kind of really go for it and there was something like just kind of like really nice about those those movies they were like move movies for adults but not you know homework. Um, oh god yeah know. not yeah not like heavy heavy worthy you're absolutely right it wasn't homework it was a treat and i think your point about tv series is absolutely spot on because it's like well of course you can't move for procedurals 
mm-hmm. now. But I actually think, you know, maybe I'd have enjoyed True Detective if it was one hour and a half film as opposed to like yeah. several series of everyone. Oh God, it's just like every the worst philosophy seminar I've ever been in. <laughs> <laughs> mm. and, and i think you're also right about the warmth of the cinematography there's something um very autumnal about um a lot of the grisham thrillers like i would when you were talking about like the warmth of them in my head i immediately just thought of i don't know if this is a thing that anyone actually did or just something that i think someone should have done but you know when there was that trend for you know re-editing the shining to make it a romantic comedy mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. i was just thinking how the firm particularly the scene of like tom cruise running down the street you could re-edit that into being a, a daffy comedy or about like a harried dad who's you know yeah, commentating on, on too many things or something with like so little effort because you know there's, there's so much of the visual language of those movies that Im- invites a certain coziness to them even if you know it's about an evil firm you know or whatever um, i i i I watched the the firm in the last six months because I'd never seen it and I could not tell you what it was about. I just know that there's something wrong with the firm, um, but it's a very enjoyable movie and it's got lots of like great stars and character actors in small roles and and that's I think another thing that's really nice about those kind of movies is like you watch it and like oh there's you know Wilford Brimley there's Hal Holbrook there's you know etc there's Tobin Bell as one of the killers. And I think Hank from Breaking Bad, I think, also is like one of the the, the hitmen in the the firm. Um, yeah, so like lots of people who either were famous at the time or would one day become famous. Um, but there is just like something really nice about um, a succession of people you know, kind of like showing up in a movie and giving you the sense like, ah, yes, I'm in safe hands here. You know, this this next two and a half hours is going to breeze by fairly fairly quickly because I know that the people who have made this movie know how to make a movie and know how to you know do good work and i think that there's less of a sense of that you know there's less of a sense now that to go to uh, uh jeffrey katzenberg um when he worked at disney would also would always like talk about things in baseball metaphors and talk about how um the work of a studio should be you know you should try and hit a home run but you should also try and get lots of singles and doubles like yeah. small modest movies that do well and that, that you know can kind of go out there and can keep furnish the, the the studio going uh, you know in between home runs and it kind of feels as if there's no there's very few studios in hollywood now that are interested in that notion of a, a single or a double of like a small modest movie that you put out makes its budget back maybe overperforms and does really well but you know is mainly just there because you need to put out uh, a movie and you know you can develop relationships with stars or maybe develop talent you know you bring in like mm-hmm. writers who are maybe new to the scene to try and do something interesting and instead everyone gets funneled either funneled into marvel stuff marvel disney um franchise stuff or you know if you're lucky you end up in like Bloomhouse world yeah. where wow. you're just making stuff like super super cheap that will be guaranteed to make a profit and will probably be like pretty good because Bloomhouse have like a, a decent track record at this point, but still like feels as if it's uh, been a little bit ghettoized to just like horror, maybe something that's more sci-fi thriller, but you know, the, like there isn't really that same sense of like, there's a, a decent pool of movies for adults that aren't Oscar caliber stuff. There's not just like, a nice middle brow cinema that people can kind of like go to and just think, ah, oh, this is nice. This is a nice thing to kind of like get away from the kids or go on a date to. Yeah. Where's the entertainment? Like you say, mm. you know, 
something that's not homework. And I think that's why people really flipped out for Knives Out, which I yeah. didn't I didn't love. And I think at the end still becomes sort of this weird little bit of like moralizing where it's like you had Tony Collette dancing the way that she did and you've decided to make this a, a, a teaching moment, excuse me. But yeah, it's exactly that. And that the mid-budget movie doesn't really exist anymore because the studios are more interested in, instead of home runs, they're, I think, trying to get their ones and, and twos in by putting them all under the same like franchise umbrella. But mm. but then it's like, oh, well, that's kind of unfair on some of these films because they, they're sort of meant to look and feel like home runs and tent poles when they're absolutely doomed because they mm. are just the side character or, you know, unless you have absolutely everyone in something like Avengers Assemble and then the the kind of eponymous character name movies as well, they're just not, they're just not going to do as well. Like everyone isn't flocking to every single one of those films in the franchise. People will just get bored. And like you say, you know, that's all right for families and for teenagers and maybe some people who were like, deep comic book fans and it's a nice spectacle but no one's gonna go on a on a date to it like you say mm. so my uh, offering uh, for this week is uh, a movie called rumble in the bronx uh, starring jackie chan and directed by stanley tong which came out in 1995 and i, I, I earlier on i mentioned um that i've got kind of like the project where i'm watching all the godzilla movies i'm like i someone i'm someone who likes to have a project you know i like <laughs> something that i can kind of like beaver away at and just kind of think okay i'll watch all the movies in this series i'll play all the game in this games in this series or whatever and um, one of my projects for this year has been to try and watch more movies uh, starring jackie chan because jackie chan is someone who i have i've loved since i was like 10 years old maybe or 11 whenever the first rush hour came out um that was just something i was super duper into just like really loved his energy thought he was just like the funniest guy in the world loved his stunts was super into the cartoon series um uh the jackie chan adventures that was like late 90s early 2000s um which i thought was really really funny but uh i never really kind of like dug into his stuff the way a lot of people did like i never really watched his his hong kong work from the 70s or the 80s i'm really someone who, who was mainly familiar with him from his like american breakout Onwards, so um, I've been trying to to rectify that uh, over the course of the year. So watching some of his his early stuff from the seventies, a bunch of his stuff from the eighties, and then now Rumble in the Bronx, which is his breakthrough as far as America goes. You know that was a movie that was produced in Hong Kong, or produ- yeah, it was a Hong Kong movie shot in Vancouver, set in the Bronx, um, made for a, for a fairly small amount of money, it became a pretty sizable hit in the US earned like 30 million dollars and was the number one movie the box office the week it came out so very much kind of marked his ascendance to being someone that broader american audiences became aware of and then you know the next year or two he does rush hour and becomes like a huge superstar in america and i think the thing that i really really enjoyed about watching all these movies and particular about rumble in the bronx is just how clear his persona is as a star because obviously, like, you know, if, if people are familiar with his, his later work, you know, there's a goofiness, a daffiness to him, kind of a general well-meaning kind of 
uh, goofy guy who you know just is trying to do the best by the people in his life and it's really fun seeing just how quickly he established that like even in his work in the 70s like he's still always kind of like the funny silly character who's uh doesn't take things too seriously until he's forced to whilst also being in ridiculous shape <laughs> it's just like when you see him anytime he's shirtless in those early movies in the 70s you just kind of like oh he could murder me very easily <laughs> he is such a strong man and but at the same time thinking oh but also he's jackie you know he's just a lovely guy <laughs> and so there's a, a a nice tension there from whenever you just are reminded of his incredible physical prowess as a performer but the thing also with um rumble in the bronx is getting to see some of his like his physicality his stunts that he, he are obviously kind of such a huge part of his appeal is knowing that he's doing so many of these stunts himself and so many of them are like incredibly acrobatic or incredibly dangerous like there's a number of uh, sequences in the movie involving car chases where or where he's like hanging off the side of a truck and, you know as is common with a lot of his movies you know there's a blooper reel at the end and there's numerous moments <laughs> numerous moments where I was watching that blooper reel, and I was like, oh, he could have died. <laughs> like, he, he absolutely could have died doing this stunt. Um, and that's so much of the appeal of him, is you just know that he's so committed to entertaining people that he's willing to just, like, really uh, batter the hell out of his body. And it was just, you know, so... It, it, it is so, it's so much fun, and it has become, again, sort of such a comfort thing to kind of dip into these movies and to really see... I guess a physical cinema um, when we are you know in an age where everything is so digital and so many of the stunts and the action in a lot of contemporary action movies outside of the John Wick franchise which obviously has prided itself so much on its physicality um, where so much of the action is so clearly stunt doubles or it's CGI characters smashing into each other like to see the more kind of like simple yet elegant charms and thrill of real people kind of like really laying into each other and you know kind of like particularly in the case of, of Jackie Chan where so many of his movies are about you know the plots are fairly thin they're very much about how do what what situations can we put Jackie in where he can use various objects to absolutely destroy <laughs> the people who are going to fight him um, and there is something uh, so um, again, again, so I'm so comforting about that, about watching those movies and just again being reminded of a cinema of like stunt spectacular where everyone involved is clearly trying to do something like that is interesting and challenging for them as well and entertaining for you versus just being kind of like, okay, you know, Iron Man's going to fire his beams here or whatever. Yeah, it's been such a long time since I've seen anything with uh jackie chan in it which is a shame but i definitely want to revisit this particularly as uh, it's 95 which seems to be a magic year for me just now in terms mm. of what i'm uh, mm. interested in in watching um but he has a lot of humor and you're right i think there is just this proliferation of like cgi and coming back to tenet like there's it's very difficult to find something spectacular in you know, knowing that this is just a lot of people. I, I, yeah, I don't know, just the kind of the lack of 
in-camera physical world effects bothers me more and more because there is this kind of thing of like you know you think about Robert Pattinson training and then hilariously not training to be the Batman and it's Mm. like yeah but that's just so that you look a certain way you know I don't know how much of that you're actually going to be it's it's just vanity rather than function you know again it's part of your performance that you just appear very strong because how much of this is just you're going to be throwing tennis balls around and stuff's going to be um, augmented and configured onto it at the end. And it's not to dismiss the skills of digital artists, but swathes of action films are just that now. And I did watch uh, about half of Detective Pikachu the other day. And that was a thing where it was like, okay, the, the sort of the gimmick of, oh, it really looks like there are Pokemon running around. <laughs> Mm. runs out pretty fast and i am one of the people who when poke uh, when uh, pikachu was was revealed to be you know furry in terms of his texture i just realized i'd always assumed that he was kind of like a dolphin yeah uh, so that was you know a lot to reckon with yeah i i i um i think they i think they last longer as well physical effects it's really hard not to see something that jackie chan's doing and just be like oh yeah he's doing that right now not loving the risk, obviously. <laughs> and then he really could have died. Glad that he didn't. But yeah, where's I think we're just missing a lot of fun, aren't we, Ed? It sounds like. Yeah, and particularly as well in terms of like the comedy in Jackie Chan's movies is like there's a, there's a broadness to it that I think is also something that you don't get in a lot of modern action movies. Like there's a scene in the movie where. No, not to kind of like get too wrapped into the intricacies of the plot of Rumble in the Bronx, but basically the idea is like Jackie Chan comes over to New York to attend his uncle's wedding because his uncle's marrying an American woman. And while he's there, he kind of like negotiates the sale of his uncle's grocery store to this uh, like young woman who's going to take it over. And there's a scene where he's helping like move stuff around the grocery store and uh, he stands in front of a one-way mirror, not realizing it's a one-way mirror. He just assumes it's a um, a regular mirror, and he starts kind of like um, posing in front of it, not realizing that on the other side of the wall is like the woman who's looking to buy the shop, and she's seeing him like posing and giggling. And then he like tries to burst a zit on his nose, and she's kind of like laughing at him, just being kind of such an idiot. And there is something about that that's like so charming to me. I think there's no snark in. Um, Jackie Chan's movies there's no sarcasm they are very earnestly trying to entertain you and they're very silly and they're so committed to just kind of like being entertaining particularly this period like obviously some of his other like more serious movies he's done like you know historical epics he's he's obviously a very he's a very varied performer and he's got lots of strings to his bow but in terms of like what I think most people think of as a Jackie Chan movie and the movies for which he's most famous for, like there is kind of like a broadness and a silliness to him that I feel like a lot of, you know, we're basically just kind of like shitting on Marvel here, basically. <laughs> like, cause like so much of that is what contemporary action cinema is kind of inspired by. But like, I feel like those movies for the most part are too concerned with being considered cool to be yeah. silly. Uh, yeah. The, the exemption being something like Thor Ragnarok, where, which obviously worked for a lot of people because it's like just like big and goofy and silly and people kind of like like that versus you know trying to be serious or you know being serious and then having 
Robert Downey Jr. makes some sort of cutting remark about it to undercut it all. Mm. Like there, it, there doesn't seem to be space for kind of like big, exciting action that's also very silly and that doesn't feel self-conscious about it. You know, uh, Ed, the big dumb silliness, you know, is is being pushed off. It's like, oh yeah, that's just like for kids or whatever, and then everything else has to be sort of like serious but with some kind of like quips in it which I think is just just less interesting to me and just like not as fun yeah for sure I think your point about being more interested in being cool than having fun is really spot on and I wonder how much of that is Marvel you know I I wonder how on the surface unconscious these things are like oh we want all of these kids to buy these toys and be cool but we're essentially working with nerd ip Mm. so it's you know so and now it's cool and oh yeah i i'm yeah i miss the humor and and you're right like just the sheer sort of entertainment and i think that's what what i brought to show and tell works as well because even though as i keep saying runaway jury isn't good it's still entertaining it's weird because it, it's trying to be so worthy and it doesn't really know what it's doing but it's really trying <laughs> yeah and I think um, even if you just like look within kind of like adaptations of Marvel properties there is such a big difference between like what the Raimi Spider-Man was doing mm. versus the you know Iron Man which came out six years later like the the Raimi Spider-Man, all three of them, particularly the first one, is it's like it's not afraid to be corny. It's not hiding from the fact that it's got these like comic book origins. It's not doing the thing that you know you saw the X-Men movies do, where they're like, yeah, we kind of need them to be in black leather. We can't have them in like colourful, interesting costumes because people will think that that's dumb. Um, it's very much taking its cue from the pulpy, goofy, corny tone of the 60s and 70s Spider-Man comics and it really really works because uh, Sam Raimi knows how to do that stuff he's not afraid of that stuff mm. whereas you do see with Iron Man and subsequent particularly that first batch of Marvel movies where they were clearly terrified about like oh god what if this stuff doesn't work what if we're just like wasting a ton of money and this is all going to blow up in our face where they're so committed to being like how do we make this feel real and grounded and how do we make it seem like something that people would like be willing to take a chance on and you know that's fine for like a couple of movies and if you're trying to establish a character like Iron Man who in 2008 was nowhere near the kind of like instantly identifiable character that it is now certainly not versus Spider-Man but I feel like there's still a certain insecurity underpinning so much of the Disney Marvel project of being like, how do we do this stuff in a way that doesn't, you know, kind of like turn people off? How do we do this thing that doesn't embrace the fact that this material is inherently silly and what people like about it is that it is silly, that it is earnest, that, you know, it ties into human emotions but has kind of like big, like, cosmic themes. This is why, like, for all of the talk of like 
Eternals being shot on you know real locations or whatever like the trailer that was down that debuted and the shots from it they just look so drab and they don't have any of the kind of the the, the vim and vigor of like you know all the Jack Kirby art and everything that mm. our series comes from and you look at that and you think that's them thinking yeah we want to try and make this as realistic as possible even though we're dealing with these like fantastical characters who are like millennia old and are you know have these like amazing powers and there's just something so uninteresting about that as an approach when you have all the money in the world to make something that's kind of like a real visual feast so we end this episode as we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you listeners will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Well, as I am getting back into listening podcasts, uh, listening to podcasts, not just being on them, uh, I have been really enjoying Maintenance Phase, which is uh, a podcast by Michael Hobbs of Your Wrong About Fame and Aubrey Gordon. And they do an awful lot of debunking of mainly diets but wellness is under their Mm. remit too and an episode that I listened to recently was about uh, the kind of links between QAnon and the wellness space and I just thought it was brilliant and again they are clearly having like such a blast doing it that it doesn't feel like homework so I can't think of a better remedy to (laughs) to our current time than a little bit of maintenance phase cool i'm going to recommend a movie that uh, i watched for the first time this week and i've been meaning to watch for ages but um could never find it and then i suddenly saw that it was uh on a a popular video platform for free (laughs) if you will if you search for it um which is uh, the wrong guy a comedy written by or co-written by and starring Dave Foley where he plays a guy who works for a big corporation who thinks he's in line for a promotion doesn't get the promotion threatens to murder his boss then goes to apologize to him to discover that his murder his his boss has been stabbed in the back of the neck rather brutally um he pulls the knife out and covers himself in blood runs through the building assumes that everyone thinks that he's the killer um and then spends the whole movie on the run and then secondary to that the police know that he wasn't the killer because the whole thing was being uh, filmed by CCTV and uh, David Anthony Higgins who people probably know best maybe from, as the character of Craig in Malcolm in the Middle yeah, yeah. Who worked over Lois as a policeman who is put on the case and just decides to use it as an opportunity to use the police budget to go to fancy restaurants and to take in a Broadway show it's a incredibly funny very silly uh, movie it is maybe the closest I've ever seen any live action film get to the quality of The Simpsons in terms of the kinds of jokes it does like it does lots of cool visual jokes there's lots of fun just like wordplay and just conceptually there'll be things like you know uh, Dave Foley's character ends up running into Jennifer Tilly who brings her home to his her dad played by Joe Flaherty who's a who runs a bank which is on the verge of closure because of the um, pressure being put on it by rich evil farmers, <laughs> which is just like such a funny like inversion of what that kind of story <laughs> is meant to be. Um, it's just got like every kind of joke you could want, and Dave Foley's just like just such a funny performer at the centre of it. He has this like complete manic, harried quality to him as he's you know on the run for no reason because no one's chasing him, <laughs> um, and 
it's yeah it's just it's just a delight it's so funny it's a very much a somewhat forgotten movie because it came out and was like a massive flop in the US and, and uh, hasn't really had much of a revival I think the, the only time I'd heard of it previously was I think Nathan Raven did uh, a My Year of Flops on it and I think that's a shame I just think it's such a funny movie it's, it's my favourite subgenre which is kind of like forgotten 90s comedies that are secretly very good and uh, I think everyone should check it out as I said uh, search, search in Google for the wrong guy full movie and you'll find it fairly easily um, uh, and it's great it's, it's really really good I'm up for anything from the creators of These Are The Daves I Know. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm into it. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player Fam, Spotify, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. 